sermon text today is found in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of the living God. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Join me as we pray together once again. Father, it's our prayer that we would see through this text and through the great gospel work of Jesus that is described in this text, that we would be brought by the Holy Spirit to see what Christ saw, even as He endured the agonies of that execution outside of Jerusalem. That we would be able to see not only the tremendous sufferings that happened to Him in time, but we would be able to see as the Lord Himself saw into the portals of eternity future, the joy set before Him. And cause us by the Holy Spirit to believe that those who are in Christ are guaranteed the same everlasting joy. Enliven our faith today. I pray that you would speak over your children again. A powerful, thundering promise of your sweet love. And for those who are yet to turn to Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And the fulfillment of all of your promises. Oh, how we collectively bind together as your people and now ask. That you would cause genuine conversion to happen in this place. On this day. For your own glory. We pray. That you would meet us. In your grace and gospel power. And we ask this. In Jesus name. Amen. This has been our sermon text. Verses 1 and 2. Now for five consecutive Sundays. In our larger series in Hebrews. Which began in 2009. We're focusing six parts on verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. We said each of the previous weeks, four Sundays, that this is the epicenter of the book of Hebrews. It's the thesis statement, if you will. If you will. It's, the, it's the point of what Hebrews is about. In chapter 1, the author gives the same themes in verses 1 through 3. And for 11 chapters, he gives his apologetic, his argument for why, there's no other Savior than Jesus, our high priest, who gave his own blood and now mediates, represents us before the Father. That's priestly work. But not only is he the only Redeemer, 
And there's no other salvation for any soul in any place, in any time, except the salvation that was wrought by Jesus on the cross and confirmed by God Almighty in His resurrection from the dead. Not only is He the only Savior, but we find in the book of Hebrews, He is the only centerpiece of the truly Christian life. So we've tried to say it a bunch of different ways for four weeks, and here I am again for a fifth week trying to say the same thing slightly differently yet again to drive home the point. The point is, being Christ-centered doesn't save anybody. It simply evidences the fact that you've been saved. Another way that we've said it is, if you look in Hebrews 11, the cloud of witnesses, or if you look down the street to another real Christian who lives in your neighborhood, or if you look across the world, or if you look back in history, anywhere you find a true Christian, you will find a soul riveted to Jesus. So Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 gives the point of the whole book. Looking unto Jesus, or fixing our eyes on Jesus. That doesn't save us. It shows that we've been saved. What saves us is not a what, it's a who, and it's Him. The one who endured the cross. We looked last week at what He endured. Despising the shame. We looked at what He despised as He hung suspended between heaven and earth. Both under the fury of man and of God. But this week we're going to find not how He endured the cross. More torture than any of us have or could face. Not only individually, but collectively. Jesus endured in six hours' time what all of hell will not unleash on its inhabitants. He exhausted the wrath of God in a finite window of time. Hell itself will not exhaust the wrath of God. Last week we looked at how He did that. Despising the shame. This week we're set to look on why He did that. For the joy that set before Him. The way we said it last week is... Before you can see the cross as something done for you, you must see the cross as something done by you. Last week, by us. This week, praise God, for us. Part one, we looked at looking unto Jesus. What it means to have a Christ-centered, Christ-focused, gospel-purchased life. The second part in this series on these two verses, we looked at running the race toward Christ. We're not alone. We must lay aside all weight and sin. And we must continue to persevere, patiently endure. Part three, we looked at Jesus as the title is given to him in this text, the author and perfecter of faith, the initiator, the completer, the pioneer, the consummator, the one who sees our faith to its completion. We looked last Sunday, as I've mentioned, at Jesus enduring the cross, despising the shame. And by God's grace, we're now ready to consider that little phrase. I want you to see it with your eyes in verse 2. Looking unto Jesus. And if you skip forward. Who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. Before we move any further, because we have some who've been with us week after week after week, and in God's wise economy, sometimes it takes multiplied dozens and hundreds of times to hear the same gospel before it lodges in our souls. And because there's probably some with us who've never heard a, a Grace Church sermon before, 
just want to say clearly what the Gospel is. What endured the cross, verse 2, means. The simplest way I know how to put it, 1 Corinthians 15, the Gospel is the good news that Christ died for our sins just like the Bible said He would. He was buried and He was raised again the third day just like the Bible said He would be. The entire Old Testament is a prelude to the events that were accomplished in the life, ministry, suffering, death, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation of a man, Jesus. The Gospel is the good news, friends, that the man at God's right hand is all the righteousness of God's people. The Gospel's the good news that you can get what the old guys call an alien righteousness. A righteousness outside of yourself. And if you don't get that, you won't be saved. And that has to be the righteousness of Christ who is God Himself. So God's standard for salvation is not that we do better, be nice, get religious, get baptized, read our Bible, go to church, fill in the blank. God's standard is that you must be as righteous as God is in order to be acceptable in His righteous presence. And the righteous Jesus died under the righteous judgment of the righteous God so that unrighteous sinners could be made righteous in His sight. If you'll turn from your sin and put your faith in that Jesus, He promises that He will never cast you out. Jesus endured the cross. Our focus today is why He did it. For the joy that was set before Him. We want to dive into that phrase in three different ways, but before we do, just let it resonate in your soul. Look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and this is part of the joy, no doubt, and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Some of you have heard of the heading in our day called Christian Hedonism, coined by John Piper years ago through his book Desiring God and and other sources. And Christian Hedonism, which is kind of a provocative handle, teaches that God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in God. So if you were to say... It doesn't matter if I get anything out of it. I only want God to be glorified. You're actually warring against what the Bible teaches. The Bible says, without faith it's impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe two things, that God exists, that He is, and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. So Christian hedonism says, you actually should pursue all your satisfaction with all your might. And nothing can satisfy you but God. So God's glorified in us as we're satisfied in God. And I think that that truth is abundantly biblical. Pursue your satisfaction is really the application message of Christianity. If your life is unsatisfied, the Bible would say it's because you've not been drinking deeply enough from the fountain of endless delight whose name is God. The Bible is not saying God is a cosmic killjoy and if you come to God, you've got to give away all your pleasure and go live this boring, monotonous, mundane, melancholy existence for time and eternity. It's quite the opposite of that. 
If you get everything the world offers you and you don't get God, you'll never be satisfied because God made you for his own glory. Therefore, the only one who can satisfy you is God. So again, the summary application of Christianity would be pursue your satisfaction. In fact, if you want to be enlivened internally, if you want to be exuberated with the delight and satisfaction that your soul was made to enjoy, if you want to know what real rest is all about, it's all bound up in the God of the universe who's given you Himself in Christ. But this passage is not so much about Christian hedonism as it is about Christ hedonism. He's pursuing His own joy. He's stalking down His own happiness. He's enduring the cross with a motive behind the endurance. The joy that is set before Him. And my aim today is bigger than I can accomplish. The Lord knows that my prayer has been for six years in preparation for this sermon when we started this series in Hebrews that God would see fit to elevate our joy in God as high as is possible on this side of eternity. Our aim is to obey the command of verse 2. Fix your eyes on Jesus. But to do so in a particular way. To look at a unique facet of His beauty, His glory, His magnificence. His stunning, enchanting, alluring character. Look at Him this way, friends. The joy that enabled Him to endure the cross that He now enjoys. I Him that way told you there's three ways we want to look at the joy set before him the first is the joy of re-entrance best way i knew how to phrase it the joy of re-entrance into his triune glory now when i was preparing for college uh, won't surprise anybody who's heard me this long in this sermon much less really long in a lot of sermons won't surprise anybody to know that I wasn't the sharpest pencil in the box and uh, scraping together loans and grants and scholarships was the path that I needed to pursue if college was even going to be a possibility. Single mom, two kids, went to a private university, so forth. Well, I found out in the process of applying for various avenues of collegiate funding that there were something called stackable scholarships. And those were the ones that I wanted as many of as possible. Some scholarships are not stackable. You can get that one and add no others. Some are stackable. They're a little here, a little there, but you can add them all together. I use that as an illustration in your mind because though I didn't get many of them, each one of them was in itself a great pleasure and relief. But the whole bundle of them had a satisfaction that exceeded any particular one of them. The joy of Jesus is like that. It's stackable. You can look at His joy in particular respects and by itself is categorically beyond the joy that this world can offer. 
But there's facets or aspects to his joy that build and compound upon one another. And today I simply want to look at three aspects of the joy set before Jesus. The first I told you, the joy of re-entrance into triune glory. Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Re-entrance into triune glory. I don't at all mean to suggest that He forfeited the enjoyment of the glory of God during His stay on earth. During the incarnation. The life and ministry of the Lord Jesus was filled with an awareness and enjoyment of the glory of God. Jesus said in John 8, what every one of us, if we were in our right mind spiritually, would want etched into our tombstone. Jesus said in John 8, the Father has never left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. He enjoyed the glory of God like no man on earth ever has. So I don't mean to suggest that he didn't enjoy the glory of the triune God during his earthly life and ministry. But I do mean to highlight what he said in his own prayer to the Father the night before he was crucified in John 17. Verse 5, glorify me together with yourself with the glory that I had with you before the world was created. Give me back that glory. Bring me back into the enjoyment of Your manifest presence. Whatever Shekinah glory means in the Old Testament. When men hit their face. When God consumes a place. The heavenly, unsin-tainted glory of God. That's the joy set uh, set before Jesus. I believe it is captured at the end of verse 2, right here in our text. The joy of being at the right hand of the throne of God, which Lord willing, we'll look at next Sunday. Kent Hughes, pastor in Wheaton, formerly at the college church, said, the joy set before Him, the joy set before Him was rooted in His coming super exaltation when He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. His exaltation with all that it means for His people's shalom, peace, and for the triumph of God's purposes in the universe. That was the joy set before Him. We can list some specific aspects of His joy. There was the joy of His reunion, as it were, with the Father. What an exalted thought, Hughes goes on to imagine. Heaven's homecoming. Imagine the joy. David's words suggest the idea, which is why we read it a moment ago. Psalm 1611. On the day of Pentecost, Peter said that Psalm 1611 is not our words. It's the words of Jesus. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. That was the joy set before him. Hughes goes on. Then there was the joy of being crowned with glory and honor. The joy of having all things subjected to His feet. Hebrews 2, Psalm 8. There was also the joy before Him of bringing many sons to glory. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. 
So look at Him that way. Reunited with the triune God in the manifest presence of the Shekinah glory of God. That joy before Him was compelling enough, magnetizing enough, that He endured what we tried to describe last week, the agonies and hell of the cross. But that can't be, I repeat, cannot be the only joy that was in front of Him. Because if it was only re-entrance into the triune glory of God, and the enjoyment of God in His manifest heavenly presence, Jesus would never have had to come to earth and die for your sins and rise again for your justification, as Romans 4 puts it, in order to enjoy that. He already had it in eternity past. As 2 Corinthians says, He was rich with that glory. With that kind of enjoyment of God before the world was created, Jesus enjoyed that joy. So stackable joy. Number two. Enabling Him to endure the cross was not only the joy of re-entrance in to the enjoyment of the triune glory of God, but also the joy of an everlasting reward of the redeemed. An everlasting reward of the redeemed. Sinners saved. A people purchased. The joy that thrilled the soul of the Savior. If you will, that animated Him to obedience to death, even death on the cross. Yes, obedience to God, but the joy-filled prospect of a people brought to God, enabled Him to endure the cross, that is something that Jesus thinks of with great joy. So Spirit, give me the right tenor and tone. This isn't a harsh point. This is the most exuberantly wonderful truth that could ever hit the ears of a human being. In our family devotions a couple weeks ago, we were looking at the God is statements. There are three of them in the Bible. God is spirit, John 4. God is love, 1 John 4. And this morning, we looked at God is light, 1 John 1. When we were looking at John chapter 4, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth, which was prayed just a moment ago, providentially, by Pastor Brian. We're looking at that statement. It comes in the account of Jesus with the woman at the well. You remember that? This harlotress, sexually deviant, living with a man she's not married to, been married five times before that woman that got gloriously saved and ran back to her hometown, which was just near the well where Jesus met her, told all the people of the village, I found the Messiah. They come running out of their town. They meet Jesus by the well. They too, many of whom I suppose, gloriously converted. Jesus then stays two days with them. Remember how that account begins? In John chapter 4, that account begins by Jesus telling 
to his disciples, he had to pass through Samaria. Remember that? He didn't have to pass through Samaria. In fact, it was inconvenient. Not to mention, socially unacceptable to pass through Samaria. The Jews of Jesus' day don't go to the Samaritans of Jesus' day. Not to mention, Jesus was going due north and Samaria was north and west. He went out of His way to go there, but He said, I had to go there. The text says He had to pass through. The King James puts it, He must needs go through Samaria. Why must He do that? Because there was a people there. Because there was a bride there. Because there was a woman soiled by sin and drowning in her damnation. Living under present tense, John chapter 3, verse 18, the condemnation of the Almighty God who was going to be at that well. He had to go there. He had to go hunt her down. He had to use her as a harpoon in his hand to go save a city. He had to go find his people. He thought with joy about the prospect of getting for himself a bride. John 10, Jesus endured the cross. That's the language from Hebrews, but John doesn't put it that way. John says, He laid down His life for the sheep. He had to go there. He's chasing you right now. All the circumstances of your life, all the struggles, all the pressures, all the joys, all the pleasures, all the pain, all the difficulty, all the worry, all the anxiety, everything about your life is Acts 17. Everything about your life is God appointing your determined time and the boundary of your habitation so that you will seek Him. He's hunting you down. He's coming after you. John 10, He's laying His life down for the sheep. That's a joy-filled prospect for Him. John 4, He has to go to the woman at the well. Ephesians 5, He gave Himself up for His bride. Acts 20, He purchased the church of God with His own blood. The joy of a people purchased that the Father had given Him. John 6. Completing the mission of redemption is one of the stackable layers of the everlasting joy of Jesus. I don't know if I'm striking the right tone, but God knows all the limits of my personality and can overcome them. But if I can say anything with the right tone, God knows, but I can definitely say it with the right content. Christ Jesus loves to save us. He wants to save you more than you want to be saved. He loves to save us. He thinks with joy about rescuing His people. It delights His infinite soul to include you in the company of the redeemed. It is Hebrews 12.2 part of the joy set before Him. Let me try to illustrate. Let's imagine that I come to your house this Christmas Eve and say I know that you're probably planning to spend the day with your family, maybe even today, probably certainly tomorrow, but I came to give you a gift. And then I hand to you this wrapped bow top package with your name on it. And before you even open it, 
you start digging in your pockets or running over to the wallet wherever you keep it on the dresser or nightstand so that you can pay me for it. You effectively eliminate the possibility of understanding what a gift is. Don't try to pay Him. Because as Christian hedonism teaches, I believe, rock solid biblically, the giver gets the glory, the receiver gets the joy, and he's both giver, getting all the glory, and purchaser, therefore receiving joy. But if we start digging in our pockets trying to pay him for it, we're diminishing the joy that he died to receive. Paul drives this point home in a way that flies in the face of much of what I've heard in contemporary evangelicalism. In my limited experiences in church life, I've heard something along the lines, though with different verbiage, it is more virtuous to give up the desire to be blessed when you serve God than it is to serve God with a desire for Him to bless you. I've heard in different verbiage that if you want pleasure, joy, benefit, reward out of serving God, then you are effectively stripping your service of God from its ability to be God-pleasing. What the Apostle Paul said to the leaders of the church at Ephesus in Acts 20 mows that down. He said to them at the end of his encounter, remember the words of the Lord Jesus. Not forget them, remember them. Drive them into your psyche. Etch them into your skull. Tattoo them on your back. Whatever you have to do to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, don't forget His words. It is more blessed to give than receive. That's what Jesus said. The word blessed, mind you, is the Greek word for happy. It's more happy to give than receive. You all know that who have been on both the giving and the receiving end. When you give somebody something that's of value to you, whether it costs you money or not, you know that it's more joyful to give it than it is to receive it. And the greater the gift, the greater the joy. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It's more blessed to give than receive. Now, I want you to think about the joy of Jesus. Nobody has ever given more. And nobody, therefore, could ever be more blessed, happy, joyful. God is the great giver. Part of the stackable joy of the Redeemer is His everlasting reward in the redeemed. He has given us everything necessary for life and godliness. He died to purchase us unto God. He gets all the glory and His joy is therefore infinite because of the gift that He gave. One author said, focus on the joy that enabled Jesus to endure the awesome agony of the cross. Focus on that joy. And dismiss as nothing the shame. He dismissed the shame because of that joy. goes on. 
Focus on His joyous exaltation and the fact that you, you, you are part of that joy. He loves to save you. He gets joy out of saving you. Part of the joy set before Him was yes, re-entrance into triune glory, but also bringing you with Him. But not only those first two stackable aspects, I believe we would have a deficient understanding of His joy if we didn't also consider a third aspect. That is the joy of an everlasting reward of the redeemed who enjoy His joy with Him. He's going back to enjoy God and He's redeeming a people. That's point one, point two. But I believe the apex of His joy. In fact, He wouldn't have had to come from heaven to earth to have number one. He would have had to come to have number two. But the whole reason He came to have number two was to have number three so that He would have a redeemed people who join Him in His joy in God. That's why He came to save us. To put it as simply as I know how, this was worth it to Jesus. He endured the cross for this joy set before Him. It was even worth the agony of Golgotha. The sobering word that we looked at last Sunday. None but Jesus was strong enough to tear down the fortress of sin that we were living in and He knew it. But not only tear down that fortress of sin that would have left us condemned in the devil's hell, He's also the only one strong enough To give us the positive aspects of salvation. What we're saved from is amazingly good news. What we're saved for is even better. He saved us, 1 Peter 3.18, to bring us to God. The just, Jesus, died for the unjust, us, to bring us to God. That was the joy before Him. He wanted you to have God. He didn't save you so you get a bigger house or car, more money or less pain. The Holy Spirit's not interested in healing people physically so they can more comfortably and conveniently go on living for themselves until they get physically ill or sick and eventually die. He came to save us so that we could have God. If you have all health, wealth, prosperity, notoriety, fame and you don't have God, you don't have anything. But if you, if you have No health, wealth, prosperity, fame, notoriety, and only God, you have everything. Jesus came to bring us to God. That's joy-filled redemption for Him. The joy before Jesus, Hebrews 12-2, which enabled Him to endure the cross, was in part that He was doing what nobody else could do, bringing us safely to God to enjoy Him forever. The way Hebrews 2 puts it, It was fitting for Him, Jesus, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. Why did He suffer? To bring many sons to glory. Hebrews 2.10 This is similar to Jesus' explanation in Matthew 25. And and I say this with uh, totally clear conscience. Matthew 25 changed my life 
I was converted, became a Christian as a freshman in college when I was 19 after having plenty of religiosity, rededicated my life four or five times, been baptized when I was nine. I was lost until I was 19. After I was converted, I began to read the Bible. I was converted, in fact, by reading the Bibles, reading the New Testament, and it became abundantly clear time and again that the Jesus in these pages was quite different than the Jesus that I knew and followed. After conversion, I continued to read the Scriptures, and I went back and started with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As I'm reading through Matthew, I get entrenched in Matthew 25, among other places. In Matthew 25, you find the parable of the talents, as Jesus tells it. It's the master going on a long trip. He gives three different servants, three different measures of talents. He gives five, two, and one. This guy gets five talents. This guy gets two. This guy gets one. The master goes on the trip. It's an illustration of Jesus in his heavenly intercession coming back for his bride. And when the master returns, you know the story. The guy who had five talents went and invested them. They multiplied one-to-one ratio. Each one made one. So there were ten talents when the master returned. The guy with two talents, same ratio, one-to-one. He had two to begin with. Each one made one. Master returns, he had four talents. Ten and four. The third guy goes and buries his talent in the ground. When the master returns, he says to the master, See, I knew that you're a hard man. You reap where you don't sow. You gather where you scattered no seeds. So I hid your talent in the ground. You have what is yours. And he gave him back the one talent they had been entrusted with. In Jesus' parable, the first two guys get the exact same response. The third guy gets a different response. Even though this guy gets ten, this guy gets four at the end of the day, they get the same response. And the response is, and you know it, well done, good and faithful servant. Next guy, well done, good and faithful servant. This guy, you wicked, lazy slave. You thought that I gather where I scattered no seed and reap where I do not sow? Then you should have put my money in the bank and when I returned, I would have gotten it with interest. The King James, as far as I'm aware, is the only English translation puts a question mark at the end of that sentence. And I think they got it right. By the way, there was no punctuation in the original, so the translators do their best. Context is king. You try to figure out, is it interrogative? Is it propositional? I think that one's a question. You thought that's what I was like? Translation, you don't even know who I am. Because you have a deficient view of God, you have a deficient view of salvation. The point of the parable is, God's not finished when He gets to you. You're not the great end of all God's saving purposes. You're just one little stroke in the huge tapestry of what He's doing for His cosmic glory. He's not just redeeming people, though that's the primary work that He's doing for His glory. He's renewing the whole cosmos. Colossians says something that I don't know if I'll understand until I get to heaven. The blood of Jesus reconciles the things in heaven to God. Colossians 1, 19-23. Even the holiness of heaven is spotted. Habakkuk 1, in the sight of God Almighty. But when He saved you, He wasn't finished. You're not the epicenter. It's not all about you. Real redemption begins, continues, and ends with God. He is the author and finisher of our faith. While I said you know the response that Jesus gave to the first two guys. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's not the main point of what He said. I know we've all heard 
and desire to hear said to us, man, when I meet Jesus, I just want to hear Him say, well done. Can I propose to you that's not what you want to hear Him say? You want to hear Him finish the sentence. You don't want to hear Him say, well done. You want to hear Him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. Therefore, I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your Master. Come get inside my joy. Come enjoy my joy with me forever. Come and prove for all eternity that the reason I saved you was not mainly about you, but me. The joy of your Master is part of the joy that was set before Jesus when He endured the cross. I was sharing the Gospel this week on Tuesday afternoon with a man in our neighborhood. It's been several encounters. And when I told him the end of the Gospel, meaning the returning, reigning Christ, where all of His people rejoice. If there's gas stations in the new heaven and new earth, we'll pump gas to the glory of God. If there's restaurants, if there's houses, everywhere we go, everything we do, every thought we ever think, will all be always for His glory. So when I was telling this fellow the end of the Gospel, he said to me, and I quote directly, you mean perfect? You see, this guy, like many in our city, is occasionally threatened. This guy in particular is surrounded day in and day out by various gang atrocities. Hell-bent teenagers, hell-bound young people in our neighborhood who push this man to live in anxiety every day. He wakes up wondering if today's going to be his last. He told me on Tuesday he didn't think he'd live to see 19. Some of us have no idea what the pressures of growing up in some of the places in our own city mean for day-to-day -day life. Gang recruitment and retaliation is a very present reality for a lot of the young people that we know and love. Immorality is coached in our neighborhood community center through seductive dance classes taught by the staff getting cussed out in your home and living room or worse by multiple family members day after day after day is something that a whole lot of people whose faces you've seen endure every day. Getting put on watch at the corner of the intersections in your neighborhood so that the cops don't bust the family drug business is part of your assignment because you inherit it. And what I tried to say to this man was that part of the joy that's set before Jesus, part of what He paid for with His blood, part of what He will see come to fruition by His own authority, which, by the way, covers all heaven and all earth, Matthew 28. Part of the joy set before the Mediator is that all who are in Him in this lifetime will have forever the exact same joy that He now enjoys 
for all eternity. When my neighbor said, I quote again, you mean perfect. You mean no more of that stuff. And by the way, most of that list came from him. You mean perfect. He had a gloriously hard time believing Matthew 6.10. The will of God will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Who taught us to pray like that? Jesus did. The same Jesus who endured the cross for that joy set before Him. So that one day, God's house is coming down. Revelation 20 and 21. And He's going to leaven the whole earth and make it a Garden of Eden. And there won't be one square inch of the cosmos where anybody is even tempted to sin, much less indulge in it. That, my friends, is the Gospel truth. Between now and then, this is what God's people get. Persecutions, hardships, sleeplessness, all this is coming right out of the Bible. Dangers, trials, misunderstood, misrepresented, falsely accused, belittled, marginalized, caricatured, maligned, slandered, weakened, fearful, trembling, will be a bruised reed, a smoking flax. There will be wars on the outside, there will be fears on the inside. We'll be tempted, tried, afflicted. To quote Paul, we will be afflicted in every way, but we will not be crushed. We will be perplexed, but we will not despair. We will be persecuted, but we will not be forsaken. We will be struck down, but we will not be destroyed. But then, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. But then, see that's not the end of the story. But then, when we see Him face to face. When we, 1 John 3, when we see Him just as He is. When we, Revelation 1, 7, when every eye beholds Him. When, 2 Thessalonians 1, when He comes and is glorified in His saints, when He's marveled at among all who have believed, on that day and for all eternity, there will only be, you can't even hardly imagine this, there will only be an everlasting increase of maximum delight in God, surrounded forever only by others who are enjoying the everlasting increase of maximum delight in God. For those who embrace Jesus Christ as Lord, Savior, and supreme treasure in this lifetime, they get surrounded forever only by people who embrace Christ as Lord, Savior, and Supreme Treasure in the next lifetime. There will be Revelation 7, 17 stamped on your soul. The Lamb will be in the center of the throne. He will be our shepherd. He will guide us to the springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from our eyes. Not one more tear. Because there will not be one more sorrow. All sad things, C.S. Lewis, will come untrue. When those who have trusted in the crucified, dead, buried, resurrected Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, when you fling yourself on the mercy of God Almighty made available to you in Christ the Lord alone, for the fulfillment of all of His promises, including eternal life, Jesus said it will be few people who do that. Few from the army of humanity. But those few are the foreknown, predestined, chosen, called, justified, glorified saints. When those people see the Lord Jesus Christ split the sky like a knife, they will hear a loud voice from heaven saying, and I quote, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. 
They shall be His people. God Himself will be among them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. No longer any mourning. M-O-U-R. No crying. No pain. The first things have passed away. Revelation 21, 3 and 4. And when Jesus is on the cross and the Father's forsaking Him and He's saying, My God, my God, Eloi, Eloi, I believe the joy set before Him that allowed, enabled Him to endure it is... The first things have passed away. So I tried to tell my neighbor this week. Yes, I mean perfect. There won't be any gangs in heaven. There won't be any anxiety in heaven. There will be no suffering in heaven. And better than that. Better than that. You will have God Himself as the everlasting increase of your own soul's joy. There will be no impediment between you and God. Will it be trying until that day? Between now and then, you get the same highway that the Lord Jesus got. You get the Via De La Rosa. You get the way of the cross. You can't say it any better than Romans 8. The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because God subjected it in hope. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. That's the age to come. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. That sounds like Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. That paragraph began with a verse I didn't read. The Apostle Paul said, knowing that day is coming, knowing the creation will be set free from its corruption to slavery, Knowing that a perfect world is coming with no pain, no fear, no tears, no mourning, no sorrow, no death, no temptation to sin. Knowing that day is coming, Paul said, Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's the joy set before Jesus. He already had it. He came to bring us into it. I watched one of those amazing rescue documentary kind of things a while back. And there was this poor lady in South America, I believe, driving down this rural mountainous road. And all of a sudden she found herself outside of her car up in a tree as the torrential floods came by. She had just previously been driving her car on dry ground and washed her car away, and she didn't know if the tree itself would hold. There was a torrential flash flood, so the documentary was about her rescue, which did happen. The rain came so quickly in the mountains above her that there was no way to be warned ahead of time or the riverbeds to contain all the water that was coming. 
When Jesus Christ was on the cross, He took that flag, that Roman execution symbol, and He planted it in a dry riverbed. And He hung there, and He waited for the water to fall. He knew that He would very soon be swept away into joy unspeakable. Like the Apostle Paul said of the man who was caught up into the third heaven, I heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. The Christian life is a life of looking to Jesus, of coming to Jesus, taking our little life and planting it with Him in that dry riverbed of this lifetime, beholding Jesus, looking to Jesus, being riveted to Jesus, and maybe in little foretaste ways for which we cry, called revival, but definitely in a consummated way called heaven, that riverbed will soon be flooded with everything that Jesus purchased for you at Calvary. And He loves, loves to save people, to enjoy His joy in God with Him forever. And that torrent, that flash flood, is on its way. Kent Hughes concluded his meditation on this passage by saying, no one, please no one, miss the superb wisdom of this passage. We must be totally absorbed with Jesus. This requires negation, turning away from things that distract us, and then the positive act of consciously focusing and meditating on Jesus. That's why we must read and reread the Gospels. Kent Hughes. I say again, begin reading the Gospel of Matthew now. Our small groups will study it this fall. Hughes goes on. This is why our worship must be Christocentric. This is why Jesus must be the measure of all things. We must focus on Jesus. Jesus must cover the entire sky. He must be the center and the horizon of all our sight. Such vision will ensure for us faith's beginning and end. Looking unto Jesus, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. And praise God, we're part of that joy. Let's pray together. I want you to take just a minute or two before we enter into a time of corporate, out loud praying. And for the next couple moments, just you and Jesus, you and God, you respond as the Holy Spirit leads in the privacy of your heart.